0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, in the November contest, Dark Elf Pool includes imp finger cues and gnome heads for balls. Somewhere beyond this horizon, guys, thwart coos. Plus part 33 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic is read by Bronson Pinchot, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Upcoming we have another in our ongoing Robert A. Heinlein roundtable discussions. We'll be talking about Beyond This Horizon, Heinlein's first novel, and man did that guy arrive with a bang. Beyond This Horizon has all sorts of stuff in it that shows up throughout the rest of Heinlein's opus from start to finish. Here is where he introduced all the ideas that animated his storytelling for really the next 40 plus years. We are doing these Heinlein reissues, uh, Bane is, in trade paperback format, and they have all new art by Bob Eggleton. Bain has quite a few out now. In fact, it makes a nice little bookshelf uh, section there for you. In each of the Bain editions, we've usually had an essay by a Bain author or another notable author who is influenced by Heinlein and seems a good fit for that particular book. This time, it was me, Tony Daniel. Since I don't exactly want to interview myself, we asked David F. Sherarad to host. And to join in the discussion, we have Bain editor emeritus Hank Davis, and multiple Nebula Award winner, professor of English Lit at North Carolina State University, artsy literary SF dude and Heinlein scholar, and a friend of mine, John Kessel. I think this made for an engaging discussion, even if John and I don't always see eye to eye, or ever. Maybe especially since we don't always see eye to eye. But we both know the good stuff when we read it, as does Heinlein polymath Hank Davis. So that's coming up, and we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. Our November contest at the Bain.com website this month is an amusing one. In the latest Ring of Fire novel, 1636, The Viennese Waltz, the Emperor of the Austria-Hungarian Empire has taken to street racing his uptime muscle car in Renaissance, a little post-Renaissance era Vienna. But the operative thought there is racing a car through the streets of Vienna in 1636. Which got us thinking, how might the rules and regulations of other modern-day sporting events change if transported back in time? Would the Romans use the heads of barbarians for soccer balls? Would the ancient Egyptian college football teams all have cat god mascots? And what would Elizabethan England's take on roller derby look like? I don't even know if I can picture that. Give us your idea, and you could win a first edition copy of 1636, the Viennese Waltz, signed by the authors Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. Just two or three sentences should do it. Send your entry in the body of an email to contest at com no later than November 20th. Yes, and remember to include your name and uh, put November Contest in the subject heading. For more details and for a link to the contest, go to the Bain.com website and look on the left-hand column there next to the free fiction for the contest.
2: Hi, I'm David Shirod. Today on the Bain Free Radio Hour, we're going to be talking about Robert A. Heinlein's novel, Beyond This Horizon. Heinlein's first published novel, released in hardcover in 1948, though it originally appeared as a two-part serial in the pages of Astounding six years earlier in 1942, under the pseudonym Anson MacDonald. It's a utopian novel, or maybe better be called a post-utopian novel, that tackles such far-ranging subjects as genetics, telepathy, economics, gender relations, philosophy, and door dilation. All topics we'll be hitting on today, hopefully, as we discuss the book. And to help us do just that, we have Bain editor Tony Daniel. Tony, of course, hosts this podcast every week. You know him. He's the author of ten novels, including Guardian of Night, and he's the co-author with David Drake of The Heretic and its sequel, The Savior. He's also written an all-new afterword to Bain's edition of Beyond This Horizon. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Are you sure you said your last name right? I'm pretty sure I'll uh, go back and fix it in post if I didn't, though. Thanks. Thanks for the heads up. Also from the Bade Editorial staff is Bade Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Uh, he's edited quite a few anthologies and books, including A Cosmic Christmas, A Cosmic Christmas to You, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, and The Bane Big Book of Monsters, which we'll actually be talking about on a future podcast, so keep your ears open for that. He's a not-too-shabby writer himself. He's actually got a story in Harlan Ellison's long-promised Final Dangerous Visions, so I'm sure we'll get a chance to read that any day now. Uh, Hank, thanks for
3: sitting in on the discussion with us. Yeah, I sold it in February 1969.
2: Yeah, so any minute now, right?
3: (laughs) Right. (laughs) And finally joining us is two-time
2: Nebula Award winner John Kessel. He's a prolific short story writer and novelist, uh, though we wish he was a more prolific novelist. Uh, In addition to those two nebulas I mentioned, he's won the Shirley Jackson Award, the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award, and the James Tiptree Jr. Award. His books include Corrupting Dr. Nice, Good News from Outer Space, The Peer Product, and The Bomb Plan for Financial Independence. He's also a prolific editor, but perhaps his greatest claim to fame is that he was my thesis director at North Carolina State University, uh, a fact which is strangely not mentioned on his website. John, do you know anything about that, why that's not on there? I have to get the website administrator and and dress dress them down. Okay, good. Excellent. All right. So, uh, Beyond This Horizon, it's Heinlein's first novel. Uh, As I said in the introduction, there's a lot going on here. Uh, But I wanted to talk about something that seems maybe minor to some people um, or could seem minor, specifically just a three-word phrase early on in the book. And it's pretty iconic. It's only three words long. Like I said, it's the door dilated. Just those three words. And I don't know, sitting here in 2014, maybe it sounds a little bit like, so what? A door dilated, who cares? But um, maybe one of you could just explain, or all of you could explain, what it is about those three words that are kind of important to the history of science fiction and how they're maybe indicative of what Heinlein brought to the genre. Well,
1: John uh, teaches this book in his classes at NC State, so maybe he's
3: got a...
4: uh... Well, well, uh, you know, I... um... Uh, pulp science fiction uh, leading up to heinlein uh, uh, it was very common to have long expository uh, sections where the author would explain the technology of the future uh, often there'd be dialogue where people would you know the uh, what we call as you know Bob dialogue where two characters would be talking about the spaceship or the the a colony on another world and and they'll say things like you know you know as you as you remember bill we founded this colony in in two thousand uh, 2000, uh Ninety-seven, and and um, and Heinlein uh, cut through that. Uh, this little phrase uh, was noted. Actually, I think Harlan Ellison made it famous when he talked about how stunned he was by reading this. Where Heinlein basically implies the technology of the future simply by showing it in action, without really bothering to stop and explain it. And, uh, you know, that was a technique. There may have been, I think there were examples of people using it before Heinlein, but he certainly was the person who popularized it and, and made it very common. Actually, I, 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 I note in, uh, Brave New World, uh, the first sentence of Brave New World is, uh, is this. It's actually not a sentence. It's, it's a phrase. It says, a squat gray building of only 34 stories. And, uh, that seems to me to, partake of the Heinlein technique, uh, a squat building of 34 stories in a book written in 1932, no 34-story building would have been called squat. And so by saying that, Huxley conjures up a city where there are skyscrapers all over the place.
1: So you're saying Huxley beat Heinlein to the punch.
4: By <laughs> by six or eight years. Six but eight but years. But, uh, but I don't think that that matters, okay? I think Heinlein is the one who's responsible for it. No one No one looks to Huxley for this. And I think uh, the door dilated is a you know there are many examples in in this book and in others of how Heinlein really puts you in the in the heart of the future right away and and then you have to sink or swim which is a, a, I think invigorating.
1: Well, I mean, I read these I read such things that you know uh, Spider Robinson's uh, and Harlan Ellison going on about the door dilated. I mean it seems to me these are just fictional techniques that were in existence before um that uh he what he really did was was change science fiction into the short story form from this sort of pseudo essay which was perhaps even a, a greater accomplishment sort of transformed it into the a medium of the short story
4: you know i uh, the first page has uh, uh hamilton felix the hero uh you know, mounts a slideway and, uh, you know, punch the door with a code combination and a weighted face check. Uh, and then, then right after that, it came promptly, the door dilated. Uh, so, you know, we have a number of things implied here right away. Uh, uh, they have, a, a, what, a, a code combination punching it. I guess it's like a keypad, which is something we have now, but they didn't really have in 1942. Uh, face check, they have face recognition software uh, or something like. And uh, the door that, that dilates, which Harlan Ellison said implied that the door is like an iris that opens uh, like an eye, um, which is is one way to – I mean, we don't really know how this door, door works, whether it's just a sliding open door like something you'd see at a supermarket or, or whether it's a, a light, indeed like an iris of an eye, which would be a rather complicated and probably not very cost-effective way to build your doors.
1: But it'd be cool because it would look like a James Bond opening.
4: It really would, really. exactly.
3: Uh-huh. There's other stuff in the same chapter, such as the casual mention that men have colored nail polish or something like nail polish, uh, because uh, one of them compliments the other on it. Uh, the, the this is not a uh, this is not the effeminate thing in that future, obviously. Yeah, and, and it comes and just stuff. after they have a shooting contest. Yeah. <laughs> And the uh the the that he he's trying to explain how big the bullets is good. He's he has a museum piece automatic he's had constructed. Everybody else uses some kind of ray gun. But he shoots bullets and he says it's a forty Colt forty five automatic. And the the man he's talking to is a mathematician, says, What does forty five mean? And he says it's uh Measure of an inch. Uh, turns out they don't. Neither of them really don't know what an inch is. Because he says, "How much is that in centimeters?" And, he, and uh, the other one says, "Well, there's three inches to a yard, I think." No, that doesn't make any sense. So there's all, all sorts of little other touches. You're you're in a future where nobody remembers what inches are, for instance.
4: Right, and so he doesn't really have to explain, oh, we're in the metric system in the future. Uh, uh, instead, instead, we're just sort of dumped into it. And um, I, I think that's quite delightful. Uh, uh, and and uh, it's fun uh, to have the world just presented like this. And I, uh, I think Tony was going to mention the fact that this nail polish comparing comes one paragraph after they just had a little shooting contest in the guy's office. Uh,
1: I think Heinlein, by doing that, was trying to... Like he built our expectations. This is some kind of macho thing with the gunfight, and then he pulled him down. He's like, "No, this is the future. This is not like anything you have imagined. You know, this is a culture that that um, you're gonna have to think a little bit about to get into."
4: Right. I, I I think that's really wonderfully challenging. I mean, the idea that okay, you know, people carry sidearms and having a dueling a, a dueling culture here. They you know they they uh, so it's it sort of seems like it ought to be hyper masculine, but uh, you know, the men wear nail polish, and and I think Heinlein's saying, "Well, what's yeah. there's no incompatibility between being, uh, you know, fond of uh, uh, duels and pistols and wearing nail polish." Yeah.
3: Uh, and also, the the men talk to each other in a almost courtly better. A lot if they're not talking to a, a Fred.
4: Right, right. I think a slogan in the book is that uh, yeah. an armed you can culture. You
3: a the uh, back at Cavalier times. Uh, having swords instead of pistols,
4: right? I don't know if maybe he was going for an 18th century comparison, as you know, men wore powdered wigs and elaborate hose and uh, were all. Uh, yet, yet that was not a uh, what undermining their masculinity.
3: It's a little hubris there too, when, uh they they're shooting at doors. Apparently, there's no problem with a ray gun, but uh, the hero of the story didn't realize his pistol shooting a bullet would ricochet all over the room, and it does. Fortunately, nobody's hurt. But yeah. He hadn't expected that.
1: So that's, so. I mean, that's what, that's the kind of thing that I think sets Heinlein apart a lot of time. I mean, he he imagines himself into the, the scene to the point where he realizes there would be a ricochet. Um, so you get that little extra twist to the scene that makes it come real in your mind and your imagination.
4: Right. He, he's, uh, I think, good at. What? Imagining what the future would be like, thinking a lot about the parameters of how people live, how it's different from the way we live, how it's similar from the way we live, and then, and then imagining how the people who live there will take for granted things that we don't take for granted. And, and then just presenting them, um, as, as, a furniture of this different future. And, um, it's, 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 um, it's startling then to have these things that we're not used to be presented and dealt with by the characters as if they're the most ordinary thing in the world. The way we would, you know, uh, not take any. Uh, uh, notice of someone using a cell phone and to check online when uh, when Beyond This Horizon was published. Okay, we uh, hook into the web and and do it instantly. Yeah. My students do this yeah. kind of thing all and the you, time.
3: And if you're with someone, you don't explain to the how how it works, right? You right. Just use it because they know how it works, unless they're your parents. <laughs> anyway.
2: Yeah. So we're in talking about this. Um, way that Heinlein constructed the future and, and that it was similar to our present in so, or his present in some ways, different in other ways. Um, there's a character in here that kind of, I don't know, maybe eases that. I wanted to get you or your all's opinion on that. Um, so this is I'm talking about, the man from the past. Um, his name is J. Darlington Smith, and he's this guy who's gotten caught in a sort of suspended animation from, I believe, the 1920s. And he's revived and sort of becomes the toast of the town in some way. And they're very funny scenes. I like uh, Hamilton Felix keeps referring to football as feetball, and he just can't understand, you know, why people aren't killing each other, why they're just, you know, tackling. And um, but I was just wondering, is that, is that guy in there, do you think, to sort of ease a modern-day reader into this future? Or what is his, what purpose does he serve?
1: Well, he doesn't come in until later in the story, so I don't think he's really there to serve as our stand in necessarily. I think it's more a contrast thing. Um it's a way of um and also he's not from Heinlein's time, which is also interesting. He's from about fifteen years
3: before. Right? Heinlein wrote this in forty one Yeah. He's from nineteen twenty six, uh which incidentally is the year Amazing Stories was founded. I don't know if that's why Heinlein picked that year.
4: I I think uh, uh, that character is there uh, as a a source of satire and and mockery. Uh, Heinlein's writing this book in the late 30s, early 40s. I mean, the ideas apparently were ones that he was thinking about a lot. I mean, you see a lot of things in the book that reflect Heinlein's preoccupations of the 1930s before he really got writing. Um, And uh, he's got a character from the Roaring Twenties, the height of the stock market boom before the crash, and the, the J. Donkin Smith is a guy who, you know, went to an Ivy League school, played football when football at Ivy League schools was, you know, was the equivalent of going to Alabama or Florida State today. It was, it was really, you know, a huge spectacle, uh, that everyone followed in the United States. They'd have, you know, 80,000 people go to these college football games on weekends. And, and then, uh, it was also very common for these young men to go immediately from their sports careers into, uh, working on Wall Street which is what J. Darlington Smith does and so then he shows up in this future where the economic system is very different and it's it's the economics whether you take them seriously or not in the book are I think a reflection of of the new, uh, new Deal uh, issues and how uh, uh, the uh, traditional uh, hard money economics of the 20s uh, led to the crash and Heinlein is saying that well we need a new system, uh, in order to deal with that. And, uh, Jay, J. J. Smith can't, can't accept it. He thinks it's, you know, it's, it's funny money. It doesn't make any sense. It's, uh, uh, and so I think Heinlein's poking a little fun at the, at the, the economics of the 1920s. Uh, and, but then the other thing about the football, I think is also, uh, amusing in that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, they want to reinstitute football as a, as a popular pastime here, but it's too, it's too bloodless for the people of the future. They need to have some killings on the field, uh, just tackling and, you know, and, uh, sacking quarterbacks is not going to do the job. Uh, so, uh, uh, again, that, that, uh, that I think is, is sort of pointing the other way that, that this is a, this is not some kind of a feat and, uh, 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 You know, bloodless future. This is actually quite a a rough and ready place.
1: weren't you uh, weren't you about to give the quote of uh, this? I mean, this comes from this book. uh, An armed society is a polite society. Does uh, uh, Felix says that actually? Who's our main character? On the other hand, Smith um, Smith really goes to town when when uh, when Monroe Alpha talks about the being on a farm and and wanting to be uh go back to the old ways and Smith knows what he's talking about in that regard and he just lets him have it you know like it's not much fun to live on a farm right he actually work and uh, work, and work. Uh,
4: uh, pokes fun high and punk was fun it's kind of the nostalgia we have for the past where we we prettify it and make it seem like it was, you know, living close to the soil on the farm, uh, uh, what, uh, Monroe Alpha has this, this absurdly romantic notion of the, of the past. As, as do the rebels who, who want to take over the society. They really don't know what the past was like and how rough it was. And, um, and, and so in that way, Smith, yeah, punctures a balloon of people who want to, uh, say that, you know, what technological civilization has been a, a, a you know a blight on the world, and we need to go back to the good old days uh, when we had uh, you know people could die and when we had polio. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's right. Smith says the extent to which being on a farm was good was was due ex, due to the Industrial Revolution and then being able to get some things that eased their burdens a little bit, like yeah. from the Sears catalog. Even if there wasn't uh, electricity yet,
2: yeah, and I think that also ties into what we were saying earlier about how heinlein um sort of masterfully um creates this future, and that uh Monroe Alpha thinks a guy from the twenties you know is sort of like a uh you know peasant farmer in a way you know he he thinks he's living off the land and, you know by the twenties, obviously that was not really mainstream. If I might, you know, raise the question of Brave
4: New World again, actually, I, I think Heinlein clearly read Brave New World before he wrote this book. And uh, there are lots of things that uh, Heinlein's given his take on, some of the things that are, you see in Brave New World. So Jay Darlington Smith, in some ways, is like the character of the savage in Brave New World, who's this guy who isn't raised in the society, and he's an outsider, and he's from a, a quote-unquote primitive place, comes into it, and his attitudes and reactions to things tell us something about this future society, but also tell us something about the future society's vision of the simple life. And uh, not that they're used exactly the same way, but there's a kind of simila- similar situation of this outsider who, who shows up, who's not part of the world. Um, and likewise, all the genetics that that's in the book, uh, you know, Huxley's really also goes very deep into the idea of, of manipulation of the human genetics to create people who are suited to society. Uh Heinlein has that as a something that happened under what they, I think he calls them the cons, uh where they K A K H A N the the uh the uh this this uh society where they genetically bred people for different roles in society and had different castes, very much brave New Worldish. Uh, that had to be overthrown to establish the utopia in, uh, that exists in Heinlein's book.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the utopia isn't worldwide because it mentions that uh, Eurasia and Africa uh, after the wars have really primitive people that are trying to struggle back up to civilization. Apparently they're not being given a lot of help, although he did go into that in detail. So, like Brave New World, there's a uh, sort of a reservation of savages, although it's apparently the whole continent of Africa, for example.
1: I, I see that that influence definitely. There's so many books that you, that I sort of see um, see Heinlein coming to terms with. I mean, especially James Branch Cabell's uh, cables uh, Jergen. Yeah, I mean, actually Jurgen is a bitch in the book. Yeah, and Mark Twain feels like there's a lot of uh, Twainian humor in here, especially with Connecticut
3: Yankee and and such. Yeah, actually, the Man for the Past speaks disparagingly of somebody who reads the American Mercury and Jurgen and think they know it all, <laughs> yeah. which is, uh, there's a little irony uh, since the American Mercury uh, eventually became a right-wing publication. Uh uh, in this context, it's obviously a left-wing publication. In fact, uh, Highlight had a couple articles that after his trip to Russia.
1: Well, but it was anti- at the time it was anti-Luddite. Um, uh-huh. I mean, that was Minkin's main thing. It's like it, stupidity should not be rewarded. Right. Uh, uh, this is uh, American Mercury
4: is a magazine, if if you know it, that was very very influential in the twenties and. 30s, mostly in the 20s is when it really had its greatest impact and where H.L. Mencken was very critical of American society. He invented terms like the buboisy. He had no use for the ordinary American. He was very much uh, uh, critical of the uh, Scopes monkey trial uh, in, the, in the 20s uh, where people were uh, against evolution or didn't believe in evolution, evangelical l- religious people. And so uh, it was a, uh, I guess you might say, a, a, a radical, critical, critical of the establishment in the twenties, and then it did become, uh, by the fifties, a very uh, right wing magazine. Although it's interesting enough, Mercury Press, that started the magazine of science fiction, magazine fantasy and science fiction in the late forties, was uh, part of uh, the American Mercury. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. But one might say that um, that the attitudes of the American Mercury slowly became the right
2: in a way. Hmm. To tie it in, Minkin was wrote that essay, I don't know if it was in American Mercury or not, where he kind of just trashes the American farmer, you know, uh, which sort of I don't know, we see that a little bit. I don't know that I don't know that J. Darlington trashes the farmer, but, you know, it, he certainly doesn't have a romantic idea about him. Um we touched on uh the cons and the um the genetics here, and I think that's um, a really central theme in the book, and I like to say it's part of the DNA of the novel, har, har, har. Um, And I think, I don't know, to me, we see sort of genetic manipulation portrayed almost exclusively negatively when we read about it or see it in movies, I think, uh, at least now. And um, it's not portrayed negatively or not exclusively negatively. Um, John, I think, mentioned... uh, the revolutionary group, the Survivors Club, that wants to sort of uh, overthrow things and return it to a previous um, imagined golden age when when people were sort of genetically bred into caste systems. Um, but that's not the way it works in the mainstream society of the novel. And um, maybe we could just talk about that a little bit. How is this? How does genetics play into this uh, future society?
1: Well, it's. Um, I think he's clearly saying it's a technology that can and it doesn't have a moral value it's the people that that use it that either bad or good ways that maybe he says that somewhere in the book I, can't, I remember something like that I think that's maybe right I say it in the afterword. <laughs> <laughs>
4: no, I actually think there's something in there about how he says how science it's actually uh, science why, why isn't the business of science? Why, why we do things a certain way isn't the business of science. It's just how to do it. And so I think that, you know, speaks the idea that Tony's saying that science can be used positively or negatively. And in, in Heinlein, I think, unlike Huxley, is saying, yeah, if we could, if we could uh, manipulate the human genome, uh, we could improve people. Uh, but what I really like is that he doesn't really have it done by fiat, by the government. Uh, or by some planning board or something like that. Uh, it, it basically, they offer people the opportunity to, to, uh, um, to have their children, what?
3: Uh, the best children. That yeah, the best children they have.
4: have. The, using their own, their own you know, sperm and eggs, they, they take, select those traits that are positive and, and eliminate those that are negative. So, for instance, nobody in the future has any tooth decay
2: anymore because everyone has great teeth from birth. But also like that, it's it's not it's not that simple though, you know. Good, bad. Um, you know, you, this was written right before World War II, so I obviously um, it came out after. It um, calls to mind other nefarious uh, plans to improve the human race. But uh, I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact passage. But it's not just blonde hair, blue eyes, tall, and athletic is good, right? Um, they talk about how. Certain traits that you might think would be good, like I, can't, I believe it's something like you, you know total recall can be good or not, and other things, and how you've got to be careful because what what may on its face seem like an obvious benefit might actually not be. So I thought that was an interesting point to make, and also that he doesn't, um, you know, I think of the movie what is that movie Gattaca, right, where the people who are born naturally are like this underclass, but that's not the case here. Uh, what's the term control naturals? And they're not uh, discriminated against, really.
4: Right, but I think that it, the book is not... I think the book realizes there's some potential difficulties with this idea that you could you know, choose your children uh, that, you, that makes a point that we don't always know what a survival characteristic is. Uh, and it depends on the environment. In some environments, what's a survival trait in another environment will be a, a detriment. And so... Uh, I think Heinlein's aware of that, but he still thinks that it's 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 uh what a potentially a good thing that we could uh, manipulate the human genome. Uh, he does seem, tend to have it done and I'll get, again, he sort of fudges a little bit. Is this done th- through social you know, fiat or is it done through the individual choices of parents? Um, and and so there's a lot of this sort of keeping up with the Joneses thing. I think that's why the bartender and his wife want to be able to have uh, the opportunity because they want their
1: child to be able to compete with other children
4: uh, in this society.
1: Yeah. And also not go through what they went through as as controlled naturals. I mean um, maybe that is the difference between the uh, the Survivors Club people. They want to select specific traits that are going to be you know the dominant um, traits that they think are the good ones and, and the Genetic planners are more interested in preserving and creating a, a really diverse and good genome that might lead to something interesting, and it does at the end of the book, as a matter of right,
4: fact. Right, and the fact that they have control naturals means that they understand that they can't, they can't know enough to be able to tell what traits are the ones necessarily that basically don't want to eliminate uh, uh, traits. Uh, that they think are undesirable completely because they may be there may be aspects of them that are desirable circumstances where they are desirable i i don't know if he had directly in mind the you know the nazi uh, attempts uh, at at uh, what eugenics eugenics was a big topic actually not just in in you know germany huge, but elsewhere yeah. in the united states there was lots yeah. of things going you know, on a lot of
3: the progressives like woodrow wilson uh, were all for right. wilson eugenics
4: Right, so, so Heinlein, I think is is a little uh skeptical of of these sort of having a program uh, that where an elite decides what what we're going to promote and what we're not going to promote.
2: Yeah, so um we've talked about that this was kind of a a, a personal choice. This was not a socially engineered uh, top down kind of program, this uh, genetic engineering, if you will. And um, Heinlein, of course, is kind of famously a libertarian or famously called a libertarian. And there's a lot of emphasis on the individual in the novel. And, um, John, you said before the interview you thought Heinlein was making some feints at solipsism. And uh, just talk about that, if you would, and how the individual uh, is viewed in this book.
4: Well, uh, what I was thinking about was, uh, you know, solipsism is the idea that The individual, well, not just any individual, but the the viewpoint person, the uh, the self, is the only real character in in the universe. And the universe is, in some ways, uh, uh, we can't. What someone said about solipsis: the solipsist takes Descartes' saying, "I think, therefore I am," and then and then gets stuck there because i think therefore i know i exist but how do i know that all of you other people are are existing i mean he wrote a story called all you zombies which is basically based on exactly that that proposition another story called they that was in the early 40s that was again presenting this and in this book there's some there's a moment where hamilton felix the main character wakes up in the morning and he he is not convinced that he for a moment he as he wakes up he thinks that he realizes the world doesn't exist, and that that he's uh, yeah, it's, that that in fact uh, it's in the beginning of chapter ten in the book. Yeah,
3: um, Where he's waking up from the effects of the sleep gas, right?
4: Uh, so he, he uh,
3: suddenly thinks he's up all the other characters right
4: uh he basically says that life is a game uh you know this was the essence of the game surprise you locked up your memory and promised not to look and then played through the part you had picked with just the rules assigned to that player sometimes the surprises were pretty ghastly though he didn't like having his fingers burned off no wait he hadn't played that position at all and basically he's 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 saying that he he is all the characters he goes on it was always like this on first waking up it was always a little hard to remember which position he himself capital h had played forgetting that he had played all of the parts basically this idea that that the, the ego here is is all there is and and uh you know i think that that's an idea that heinlein was tempted by the idea that the world was was not real and and that he you know he couldn't really It's kind of, you know, solipsism is the ultimate egotism where you, you know, maybe the ultimate individualism. Uh, It's not quite the same as individualism, however. It's more of a kind of philosophical uh, uh, skepticism.
1: Well, the the thing that I got out of that Waking Up passage was more like, um, perhaps that, but perhaps there's some sort of connection between everybody because the book goes that way. That language mediates, you know, this, but, but that really, if we got beyond language, we could all be telepathic and share each other's beings and thoughts. And you don't know who's your head, whose head you might be in if you're telepathic. Mm-hmm. There was this entire, this, this building up to, of this, um, this very strange um, supermind semantics, uh, not the semantics, it's a kind of semantics um strain of thought that 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 took over a lot of like John Campbell's thinking later and it's very I've always wondered where that came from and, and it started it must have been an extremely strong I guess Korbinski Korbinski, yeah right Krabisky. Alfred Korbinski
4: I can't remember how to pronounce his name and uh, yeah uh believing that semantics, language. If you control language, you control reality, essentially. Yeah.
1: If you know the legend to that that there's a bunch of different maps of different rea- but if you have the legend you can speak in ways that are that are real, that get beyond the
4: Right, and, and Krasinski's theory of semantics was if you could clear out all the bad language in your head, then you would be completely sane and and and
1: able to completely uh,
3: understand reality. Yeah, and which you
1: know, sounds a little bit like Scientology to me. But, yeah, well, I, I think his, later uh, become, but
3: his, his book was named, in fact, Science Insanity. Right, right. It's uh, one of those books that nobody ever reads, of course, except maybe A.E. Van Vogt. Apparently. Van Vogt was
4: very <laughs> influenced <laughs> yeah. by it. He had it all in uh, his his books, uh, The World of Null A. and,
1: and all that stuff. Well, I mean, Hubbard, who was good buddies with Heinlein um, at that time, and perhaps his wife even slept with him, um, we learn in the, uh, the new autobiography by, this must have been going around at the time, must have been a big uh, intellectual talk, you know, that cocktail kind of intellectualism that was going around at the time, because they all adopted it, and Hubbard took it, of course, to the absolute extreme
4: there's a, a real mystical element in the in the latter latter part of this book where there is a suggestion of uh, uh you know what telepathy and a group mind uh definitely reincarnation is is pretty much just put into the book that the idea that that we are are born again and and uh, uh we we don't remember it or we have vague recollections at times but basically we we come around again and again
2: on some of those more mystical elements um Patterson, um, William H. Patterson, Jr., uh, who wrote that great Heinlein two-volume biography, uh, he wrote the introduction here. And um, he says the novel's really wrestling with the question of what are we for? And uh, in a way, well, not in a way, pretty directly, Hamilton Felix is kind of searching for the meaning of life. They want him to have children. Uh, and he says he'll do it if they'll, um, if science could prove that there's an afterlife, right? That's kind of, his line in the sand if you or if not even if you could prove if you'll look into it because if there's an afterlife he says there's something worth living for and um they decide to even take it further in the book they they're going to look into all these different thing, um all these different notions that we typically think like religion or philosophy that's their sort of um milieu it reminded me a lot of our present reality which is that you know neil degrasse tyson um Scientist who hosted the New Cosmos, uh, he basically said he doesn't think philosophy is necessary anymore. That science can better answer the questions. Is is that what Heinlein's saying that we should be looking to science to answer the questions that we typically look to uh, the church or to philosophy to solve?
1: Well, I mean, I think that he's saying that you can approach it rationally and not that and empirically, but that's not necessarily science. That a rational person can. Can can look into these things without having to be a religious person. Yeah.
4: I think that uh, you know Heinlein would like to to have uh, some scientific proof for the you know what the soul the afterlife whatever yeah. you want to call it. I think that uh, I think that extends beyond beyond this book. Yeah, uh,
3: I, uh, this this may be apocryphal, but uh, Heinlein is supposed to have been offered. Uh, to be frozen after his death, possibility to be resurrected where they could cure what killed him, but and he he's supposed to have said, "Well, that might interfere with rebirth." <laughs> so I, oh, I suspect he may have <laughs> thought there was evidence for had, hadn't had retribution, right. perhaps
4: right. I think there always was an element of uh, mysticism in Heinlein's writing, not a lot, okay, but but little moments where where he feels that what a strictly materialistic vision of the universe is not
3: uh, satisfactory. Yeah, like at, at the end of Requiem, uh, when Didi Harriman is dying on the moon, he thinks he hears somebody calling him in his familiar voice. Uh, but the story leaves it up to whether he's just imagining that as he dies or if actually maybe his wife is calling him or somebody, or somebody else he knew.
1: I think that Heinlein is trying to do and say is that, you know, I'm writing stories, I'm examining possibilities. I don't think he's trying to come down on anything in any particular way, whether there is or isn't. He's, um, he's, he's constructing an experiment. Maybe there is within that story, but I don't know if Heinlein believes it or not. And it doesn't matter whether he believes it or not. He always wanted people to go to the stories to find the meaning of the stories. He, he never wanted to... Uh, a bunch of uh, theorizing what we're doing.
4: Well, I, I I think he was a little too defensive about that. I think that there are enough things that are consistent throughout his whole career, really, that it's hard to say, oh, no, he's just trying the idea out. So the idea in this book, for instance, that basically the purpose of females, the one major purpose of the existence of females is to bear children and all other things they can do are secondary to that role that's there at the beginning of his career and it's there at the end of his career uh you know i don't i don't know that i mean it, and it's not that he doesn't recognize women are capable of any number of other things and are incredibly competent at any number of other things that uh, you might say a, a sexist view would would say that they couldn't do uh, but nonetheless uh, when a push comes to shove his female characters are basically meant to be. I don't know. If that's
1: true. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> I would say he would. He, he elevates it more than than contemporary feminists do as an as an important and um, in, necessary part of a yeah. woman being a woman. But you know, he's got Helen uh, uh, Phyllis. Uh, what's her name? Longcourt. Longcourt Phyllis. She has a job, and it's a job that Hamilton finds gross because she's dealing with uh, she's basically a preschool teacher, but um,
4: Well, but once once she commits to to uh, Hamilton, her job
1: is basically to yeah. have kids, alright? Uh, I mean, you know, she it's Well, that's, I mean at that time um, 1941 if a teacher got married, they were uh, often had to quit in well, school systems. Like in Birmingham, I remember there there used to be a hotel where all the teachers lived, and then when they got married one by one, they had to quit the system.
4: And Heinlein can imagine a, a culture where dueling is common and men wear fingernail polish, but he can't imagine one where women can have a family and still have a career. Uh,
1: I, I'm I, not sure that that's true. Well, but well, we I, I I'm not saying the books that. And, I mean, look at. Uh,
4: all right. I, I I don't think he says that women can't have a career and have children. But repeatedly, over and over, and, and from front to end of his career, he he makes a, a a strong point that women women's major purpose in the evolutionary biology is to bear children. That's it.
1: I would say a major purpose. He says.
2: Well, we'll have to agree to disagree about that. All right. We'll agree to disagree on that that article A or the but I do think that brings up something, which is um what John is referring to is um after Longcourt Phyllis, uh, Hamilton Felix's wife, um gives birth, he he's kind of agonizing over the pain of labor and uh and she says, This is what I'm for um and we, we kind of just talked about the possible uh, gender implications of that. But on a broader scale I think There's a very pro-children, pro-offspring thread just going through all this. Maybe he's saying men have only one real purpose, too.
1: And in fact, from the point of view of the genome, that's true. Yeah, I mean,
4: uh, you know, the selfish gene idea that we're here simply to reproduce the the genome again. I, I actually don't think Heinlein would disagree with that, that men's purpose is to father children.
2: Right, and I just wonder how does that, how do you think that kind of rubs up against, is it in conflict with his... You know, very individualistic if, is it individualism and the self is important or is really the species the important thing or maybe they're not in conflict
1: Heinlein in Virginia Heinlein couldn't have kids and he never did
4: well um, you know I think that uh, Heinlein I think he does uh, I mean, he often has uh, the male characters uh, has has um, any number of characters who are, are willing to sacrifice their lives for the, the sake of of the rest of humanity or for their families or the people they love and uh, I mean I guess that's not an uncommon uh, sentiment but but I think he seriously feels that that you know that's that's another role that, that men have is to is to make sure that
3: that um,
4: you know the, the race survives.
3: Yeah. As he, as he said several times, women and children first. And any society doesn't believe that is not going to survive.
4: Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a uh, there's an interesting balance between individualism and I think Heinlein is fundamentally an individualist. Uh, it's hard not to see that. Uh, but I think he also believes to some degree in, in social welfare. And, uh, you know, his attitudes about that, I think, those change over his career. Uh, when he, he goes from being fundamentally, a, you know, he was a supporter of Upton Sinclair and in his run for governor in California uh, on this end poverty in California platform, which was basically a, a very socialistic plan, and then and then uh, you know later he basically doesn't feel that. I mean, I think he was but, still. I
1: mean, throughout the 70s, he was campaigning for blood banks. It's not a—I mean, he, he never got rid of the notion that people owe something to society Then we want to—I mean, there was a huge—that was his thing.
3: Right, and he actually—when he
4: he, when he was campaigning for blood banks, he himself needed transfusions regularly. Uh, that was one of the things that that, that uh, was part of his health regimen in the 1970s. But they weren't
1: giving blood to him. They were giving—you know, it's it's not like he was campaigning for his personal stash.
4: Right, I got you, and I, I think that he, you know, he definitely, uh, as I said, uh, believes in the sacrifice of of the uh, indi- individual for society, but his but his his social politics, I think, changed drastically.
1: Wouldn't well, you say that he he had, believed in a balance of some sort between those two? That I mean, I don't, I, I can't see reading the books where. We say he's a libertarian, but and but it's clear that you know he thinks there should be some laws that that we have, and we should take care of each other in some ways that are uh, better done corporately. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. It's hard to to after you've read everything, and it's hard to square that against all the conceptions of him. To me, I don't know. It's I have a different idea after having read read the books mm-hmm. of than a lot of people do when they want to talk about this. And they've usually they're usually coming from one thing that they've read, you know, and didn't oh. like or liked.
4: Wow. Well, do you the, think that do you think that he would in nineteen eighty have supported something like the epic uh, platform for, for, for politi- politically? I, I I just don't I mean I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that no. he's different.
1: Yeah. Well I think he's a Republican. I mean, the Republicans believe that there should be certain things left to government. And I think Heinlein did, too. He liked roads. I think he liked his garbage picked up.
4: Um, I, I don't deny that. I, I think, however, his opinions were very different in 1985 than they were in
2: 1935. Yeah. So talking about the scope of Heinlein's career, you know, 35 to 85, something like that, Roughly. Uh where does this where do just in closing, where do we think this book falls? I mean it falls at the beginning chronologically, but um where does this fit into the larger body of Heinlein's work? It's certainly not something that gets as much press as Starship Troopers or Beyond uh excuse me, beyond this horizon is this book. Starship Troopers or Moon is a harsh mistress or Stranger is a Strange in a strange land. How does this fit into the Heinlein uh canon, do you think?
1: I think is the, I think you can find the seed to every, um, every era of Heinlein's writing in this story. I think you can find a little bit of all of it. He was just coming off having written his first novel that never got published till way later. Um, what is it? Us the Living? Uh, For Us the Living?
2: Uh, For Us the Living. It came out and it was finally released in 2004,
1: I think. I think that he was in the, in the amount, in, in the, the Bunsen burner, uh, Everything's stewing in his mind that uh, position of somebody that's really coming into their own as um, as a mature intellectual thinker and that it, it's this it's where it started to crystallize in this book
4: I think it's a uh, uh, you know I don't know if it ranks with some of those later books but I think it's full of ideas wonderfully fertile imagination here and 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 he's really indulging he's really enjoying writing i think and enjoying the technique and he, And he's like a guy who discovered to me it's like a, a young phenom who comes up from the minors into the majors in baseball and just you know rips through the place okay he really is is uh you know he's just so full of ideas and energy and and humor and and uh, it's just really, I think, a a, a fun book to read. Uh, and I, I also agree that many, if not all, of the things that he later spends a lot of time writing and thinking about are all all incipient in this book, too. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's funny. We may disagree about some things, but I think we'd agree about that, Tony. Uh, I, 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 I've taught this book a lot of times because I really think that uh, what I also feel is a lot of people don't, Really, people a lot of people have opinions about Heinlein who haven't read him, and so they need to read some of the stuff. And so I I often I like to teach this book because it I think it causes people to to you know think about who he was and what he was doing.
3: Yeah. Also, I I think I remember in the late '60s reading uh, somebody had taken a poll of science fiction writers for their top books, and apparently this one. It was a headline book that kept showing up on the ballots, and I wish I could remember the details. I don't remember where I read that. <laughs> apparently, writers thought a lot more of this book than uh, most of the most of headline's readers did.
1: It seems like the two different kinds of Heinlein readers can come together in this book: the, the people that like the juveniles a whole lot, and then the people that like Stranger in a Strange Land and, and et cetera.
4: The uh, um what the the Denvention, the Denver world science fiction convention I think it was in 41 or 42 I can't remember which year it was but they made Heinlein the guest of honor uh, at this convention and this was only like two years after he published his first story which strikes me as some kind of statement about how much impression he made on people so quickly with these early stories uh, that that he, he sort of you know I think he knocked people Knock people off their pins.
1: Uh. And created the foundation of sh- the short story as what we do in science fiction uh, to get started uh, as writers and as readers often. And that sort of was the beginning of the genre there. It's something you would want to read um, for pleasure and not just historically. <laughs>
2: All right, we've been talking about Robert A. Heinlein's first novel, Beyond This Horizon. It's available now from Bain with an introduction by Heinlein biographer William H. Patterson and a new afterword by Tony Daniel. John, Tony, Hank, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, Thank you. Here. Thanks, thanks, David.
1: And now, here is part 33 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy-the type of active who controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These guys and gals are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here's Bronson Pinchot with Part 33 of the Complete Audiobook Serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter Fourteen you can go
0: a long way with a smile. You can go a lot further with a smile on a gun. A smile, a gun, and a brute gets you the key to the city. Al Scarface Capone, Interview, 1930 Detroit, Michigan The pale horse awoke feeling more refreshed than he had in three years. It was as if a great burden had been lifted from his soul, It is done. Harkness had followed Cornelia Stuyvesant to Michigan. His sources had confirmed that the billionaire had completed his assignment, and the proper modifications were being made to the chairman's personal airship. He could not have asked for better timing. Pershing finally succumbing to his curse on the very same day as the completion of his favor would be seen as a sign of his power It was a coincidence, but Stuyvesant would be terrified. Having a man such as that under his thumb could prove valuable in the future. Pershing had been a strong one. When Harkness had first touched him, he had expected him to last a few months, perhaps a year at most. He had underestimated the willpower of such a man, not to mention the remarkable and surprising skill of his healer. That thought made Harkness swell with pride. This assignment had been draining, but it would be worth it. He dressed in his finest suit and took the elevator to the lobby. He would send a telegram to Isaiah. The powerful reader would not know of Pershing's demise until it hit the papers, but he needed to get to work. It was almost time to provide the chairman with the location of the last piece of the Tesla device. Their plan was almost complete." Mar Pacifica, California Arrangements had been made to take the General's body into the city for transport to Arlington for burial. By the next day, word would spread over the wires, and the entire nation would mourn the loss of one of their greatest heroes. And they only knew the half of it, Sullivan thought bitterly. He wasn't sure if it was the recent shock of Pershing's memories that caused him to be so angry at the powers that be and their isolationist blindness, or if it was his own memories. Either way, he had a job to do, and with a rock-breaker's dedication, he knew it was going to get done. The American Grimnoir were taking their leader's loss hard. Command fell to John Moses Browning until the society's elders appointed someone else. Sullivan could tell that Browning didn't want the responsibility. He was very old, but he'd fulfill his duty. Sullivan could respect that. They had called a meeting, and the group had gathered around a long rectangular table. Browning stood at the head, exhausted and drained. At his right hand was the stocky Lance Talon. On his left was the bespectacled Dan Garrett. Of the others, he knew Heinrich well, but he only knew the kid Francis, from when he'd kneecapped him. Delilah had come down and sat directly across from him, but she'd only greeted him with the slightest of nods. Jane was the most distraught by the previous day's events, but had still joined them. She sat next to Dan, who was discreetly holding her hand under the table. The last person to join them was the young girl who had shot him in the back, then saved his life. She was an odd one. Thin, gawky with hair like wet straw and the strangest gray eyes he'd ever seen she held out one little hand to him in greeting he took it surprised that she had calluses that would make anyone running a pickaxe at rockville proud you look just like your brother only not evil sorry about murdering you attempted murder he corrected her oh no you were totally dead when I found you under the magic jellyfish, she smiled. Good thing you followed me back. I'm Sally Fay Vieira. You can call me Fay. she took her seat. Browning got right down to business. I have received a message from the Grimoire elders. We are to take no action until we receive further orders. We've been sitting on our asses for too long, Lance complained. Browning frowned, obviously not liking foul language, but used to working with Lance. What would you have us do? We need to get out there, find Bob Southunder, and get the last piece of the Tesla device. Sullivan paid careful attention. The general had been certain that one of these people had betrayed them to the chairman. Only nobody, not even the general, knows where Southunder went, Garrett pointed out. We have no idea how to reach him, or even if he's alive or dead, how are we supposed to find him? I can, Sullivan thought, realizing that he knew exactly how to find the man. Pershing had kept that secret as his ace. He kept his mouth shut. If the chairman already had the last piece, then we'd know as soon as he fired it, Browning said. We have to assume Southunder is still alive. Fay raised her hand. What about my grandpa's piece? Browning shook his head sadly. Unfortunately, the part that was taken by Maddie was the complex piece. What you have is not that important and the chairman's cogs should have no problem replacing it. Oh, Fay stared at the table. Shoot. Who let her out? Heinrich asked. I did, Browning said. The general read her, she's no shadow guard. I only shot Mr. Sullivan because he looks just like his big brother, Mr. Maddy. There was a rustle as most of the grim noir turned to Sullivan in surprise. He stared back at them coolly. Yeah, got a problem? Jake, is this true? Delilah asked. Maddie is the one that killed her dad. He is, but I didn't know he'd fallen in with the Imperium till yesterday. He disappeared on AEF Siberia. I hoped he'd either died or settled down somewhere. Can't say I'm surprised, though it suits him. Delilah looked away, seemingly stunned by that revelation, and his stomach lurched. Your brother is the Matty? The kid, Francis, asked. He's the most powerful of the Iron Guards. He shrugged his big shoulders. You can't choose your relatives, kid. Francis turned red with embarrassment. Yes, of course, sorry. Browning continued. It's fine, Francis. Despite the general's issues with your family, we've been able to make good use of this estate. We needed a place where we could keep the general safe during his illness, now I imagine we'll need to be on the move again for our own safety. I have received word that the elders will be sending a new commander. I will step down as soon as he arrives. That ain't right, Blant said. Those are the orders. In the meantime we are to do nothing, not even give the oath to any new members. He dipped his bald head toward the end of the table that held Sullivan, Delilah, and Faye my apologies. If you wish to join the society, you will need to be interviewed by the new commander. Otherwise, you will be asked to leave our protection. It, it is out of my hands. Fay did not know what to make of this news. She had barely known Mr. Pershing, but he'd immediately accepted her like Grandpa had. He'd even taken the time to read her mind and share some of his own memories with her. It had been especially fun to see Grandpa as a brave younger man. Some of the other memories had been strange, and she was still trying to figure out why he'd shared some of those with her. Browning continued talking, answering the other's questions. They weren't happy. Faye could tell that they were like her. They wanted to take action, not wait around for someone else to tell them what to do. She looked over at Mr. Sullivan. He seemed nice. He reminded her of a mature bull, big and strong, but not with a lot of snorting and kicking up dirt, quiet like he didn't need to show off. You could tell he was powerful just by looking at him. She still felt bad for shooting him. Delilah would watch him quietly every time Mr. Sullivan turned away, playing it shy, which didn't seem like Delilah at all, but Faye didn't pretend to understand such things. She didn't like that part about not being allowed to be a grim noir, but that didn't matter to her. It was just a name. She had some promises to keep, and that included avenging her grandpa and killing Mr. Maddy and his boss. The servants brought in food, and she dreamed absently about how she was going to shoot the correct Sullivan next time as she ate. She could get used to having servants. When the meeting was over and everyone was dispersing and that scary German who had shot her in the heart was watching her suspiciously, she caught Lance by the arm and followed him outside. Will you still keep teaching me how to fight? He stopped, thinking hard. You didn't keep your promise. No murdering without good reasons, Faye sighed. I'll try harder this time. Lance grinned through his bushy beard.
1: It'll be my pleasure. That was part 33 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a complete chromosomal makeover by the district moderator of genetics and a ticket to reincarnation as any Heinlein character they wish to David F. Sherrad, Hank Davis, and John Kessel. As for me, I think I will take michael valentine smith for my reincarnated meat suit he gets lots of interesting things to do and engages in lots of action in stranger in a strange land don't forget eric flint's islands the full cast audio drama from bane books is available at BaneEbooks.com. if you like that sort of thing you'll really like this thing please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for
3: the stars.